Hey everybody, welcome back to Noggin Notes. It's an original podcast, first time in several weeks. We spent the last few weeks rebooting some of our favorite episodes with regard to emotional functioning. I love emotional functioning. It forms the foundation of everything I do in my career. And if you haven't listened to those episodes, please go back and do so. I think you can find some great insight into your own life and modifying the way that you interact with the world. So I'm glad for the break. I'm glad to be back. This interview today is with a very special person. His name is Donald Conti. He is the father of Christian Conti, who has been on this program multiple times and uh, to whom I, I pay reference many times as well. We talk about a broad range of subjects, everything from um, biology to geology to psychology and lots of other ologies. He's a really sharp individual, um, spent time as a professor, uh, wrote some policy, really cool stuff. And presently, he maintains a blog called This Is Not Your Practice Life. Dot com. Go check it out. He writes really, really well, and he integrates a lot of really cool concepts across all disciplines and makes for good, really, really good brain fodder, I think. Um, I enjoy it, and that's why I wanted him on the show is to just talk about stuff, and we did, and I think you'll find it useful. I found it useful and educational, and I think you will too. I'm not going to say any more because the rest of the show is pretty broad-ranging, so um, enjoy it. In the meantime, please visit our sponsors. Zephyr Wellness is one of them. It's Zephyr Wellness has been with us since the beginning because that's the company that I co-own here in Northern Nevada, and we provide mental health outpatient counseling services. Check out our YouTube channel for really cool information on lots of things related to counseling and psychotherapy. Check out our Instagram and Facebook and Twitter accounts. Also, we're trying to post you know free information and uh, retweet stuff and that kind of kind of thing, all to help help make everybody's lives a little bit better. Also, if you're not familiar, go check out Audible. If you haven't heard of Audible or if you've heard of it and haven't tried it, you get a free 30-day trial through Noggin Notes. If you go to audibletrial.com slash Noggin Notes, you can get your free 30-day trial, and along with that free trial comes one free audiobook download. And it doesn't have to be a book. It could be any of their audio content. And they truly have an unmatched selection of content. It's the, Their library is incredible. So if you uh, if you get that free 30-day trial, you're not going to be unhappy. But uh, for some reason, you decide not to continue it. You get to keep your free download anyway. So audibletrial.com slash notes. Show us how much you appreciate us. And show us how much you appreciate us even more by giving us a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate us high. That would be great because the higher the ratings, the more people see it. And the more people who see it, the more people listen, the more people who listen, the more lives we improve. And that's really all we want to do. We're not making any money off of this. And um, we're just giving it out for free. So share and share around with as many people as you can. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy this conversation I had with Don Conti. It's uh, it's really good, and after you listen to him, it's no wonder why he uh, why his son does so well in his profession as well. Enjoy, folks. Today we have uh, we have Donald Conti, who is uh, if if you've been following the show much, you know that uh, I reference another Conti, and his name is Christian Conti. This is Christian's dad, Don. So, welcome to Noggin Notes, sir. How are you? Thank you. I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm awesome. And you're in Pennsylvania, and uh, I, I always like to. I always wonder. I don't know if I always ask, but how is the weather there? We're at the end, we're in spring right now. Um, it's always variable in spring. I mean, you go to a baseball game one day in spring, and you freeze, and the next day, sun's out, and you're fine. That's uh, last too. night. I watched the 
I watched a high school game that my uh, one grandson played, and I was in his T-shirt, and sun was beating down on me. And a few days before that, I was wrapped up in winter clothes watching my other grandson play a college baseball game. So it's it's always variable, highly variable. You got grandkids in college. We should. I want to talk about that because I want to talk about um, you know grandparenting and retirement and stuff like that. But I think we should probably start with an introduction about you know who you are and um, what you've what you've done in life and that kind of thing. Because the way that I've connected to you obviously is through Christian, but then you also write a blog regularly called "This Is Not Your Practice Life," and I love the title. But I really enjoy your writing as well. So uh, talk a little bit about that and like what your what your career was and all that stuff. Okay, well, uh, I've had, I suppose, diverse experiences, as everybody usually has, especially when you reach this grand old age. But I, uh, I can remember my first job as a garbage man, uh, went through things like uh, being a construction worker, a jackhammer operator, which is one, probably one of the reasons I can't hear very well, uh, <laughs> and uh, a number of other jobs, janitor, et cetera, truck driver. But um, I went to college, and um, I had no real guidance except my father said, when I said to him, well, if I went to college, what would I major in? He said, well, you're relatively good at English, so why don't you major in English? So I did, got that degree, and then uh, ended up just three years later, probably at age 24, as an English professor in uh, one of the state universities. And from that, I taught something like uh, 10, 11 years, but I was handed one of the tasks of the Department of State Scientific and Technical Writing. So I thought, you know, I really should pick up a little more science. So I started to take more science courses. And then one day, uh, the chairman of the Department of Earth Sciences said, would you come teach for us? I said, well, why do you need me? He said, well, we're losing our oceanographer. So I took a sabbatical, went to an oceanographic institute, the Rosenstein School of Marine and Atmospheric Sciences in Miami, which is a division, a research division of the University of Miami, and studied oceanography, geology, came back, uh, and I started to teach the earth sciences, specializing in oceanography, but of course that involves marine geology and that involves other geologies. So I ended up, um, at the end of my career, I typed up a page, single-spaced one day, of the, of the different courses I had taught. And I filled the entire page with a number of different courses I had taught over my four decades at the university, which uh, says that obviously I must be a jack-of-all-trades and a master of none. Um, in that time, while I was a uh, professor, I did research for uh, the EPA and the Pennsylvania Energy Department. I did, I started uh, uh, research by doing something with Argonne National Laboratory on uh, soil conservation uh, over uh, pipeline right-of-ways. And then from there, I went to doing research on greenhouse gas emissions for the state and for the EPA. And I kind of feel guilty in a way because I was in on that ground floor and I did Pennsylvania study of greenhouse gas emissions that the EPA wrote a letter to me saying, we're going to use your study as a model for all the other states to follow. And that seemed fine at the time. And then as greenhouse gases got more politicized, 
I thought, oh, what have I wrought? You know, what have I, what have I done? Um, because the world's going crazy over this. And it's becoming such a political football that it's not what my intention was. Uh, they had given me a task, and that's the task I did. And I went from that to doing research on um, green technologies for the state of Pennsylvania and how the state could, it was losing in the 90s. 105,000 manufacturing jobs. And as you know, Pittsburgh was the heart of the steel industry. And there were steel mills in Pittsburgh that were like three or four miles long, and there were 50,000 workers uh, doing that job. But that all died during the 70s, and then uh, we ended up with all the problems of what do we do with all those so-called brownfields and the state was looking to get into green technologies as a way to supplant, to replace those jobs that it had lost. So Pennsylvania, and it's really interesting, I'll just mention this, and you have to, I guess, forgive me for being old and digressing, but Pennsylvania had 11.5 million people when I was growing up. It was the second more, most populous state. And it had only 12.5 million people at the end of the 1990s, uh, only a million people difference. And the reason for that was all the young people were leaving because mm. all the jobs were elsewhere. I mean, the, uh, for a long time, uh, kids grew up, their parents worked in the mill. They went ahead and worked in the mill. The jobs were right there in the town. Sure, they smelled of sulfur uh, in the evenings and uh, there was coal dust everywhere. And probably everyone in uh, my generation has some sort of black lung as a product of it because of all the coal in the, in the area. But uh, the state wanted me to do the green technology study. So I did that. I did uh, policy for the state on reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And then eventually, uh, since I'd done so many environmental studies for the Department of Environmental Protection in Pennsylvania, they asked me to do a study on all the effects underground mining had on any feature at the surface. So not only the land, but on buildings, utilities, everything. That that was a pretty massive study uh, I did for the state. And after I finished that, it was just before I retired, uh, the uh, a, a very large coal company asked me to become a consultant when, uh, actually the summer that I retired because they had a battle with the uh, controlling entity in the state in Western Pennsylvania that looked over uh, coal production. And there was a coal mine that was going to be shut down and 500 uh, miners were going to lose their jobs. Well, you know, that has a, a multiplying effect. 500 miners lose their jobs, six other people lose their jobs, you know, in support. And the reason for it was so-called high quality stream. They wanted to go under. Now, I don't know if you know anything about long wall mining, but mm-hmm. long wall mines, or well, there's the old traditional way is um, the room and pillar, where they would go, uh, people would go in and they would remove a large section of coal, but leave a, a pillar of coal to support the overlying ground. And then move, so the next room would then be mined, there'd be another pillar, et cetera. Hmm. Well, when long wall mining was invented, you're looking at machines that could mine. 1,200 feet wide by two miles. And as the, uh, they didn't worry about subsidence because as the machine moved, the ground above sank. Now, in Western Pennsylvania, mine subsidence has long been a problem because 
for over a century, the coal mines have been operating. And way back when, people were kind of ruthless in getting all the coal out. They didn't care. So what they did is they took they took the rooms of coal out and went back and they took the stumps, the pillars out. And then there was uh, always the potential for subsidence. Well, anyway, so I did study uh, on uh, for the state on that, on the effects of long wall mining. And then when the coal company was shut down because the DEP said, well, you can't go underneath and move from one giant room, which is, as I said, 1,200 feet by two miles long, you can't move your equipment over to the next one because it would underlie a, a high-quality stream. Well, the coal company hired me because, and this is where things get a bit absurd. So I, uh, I had a staff that I hired, and I went out, and I, I looked to see what was going on with the, with the mining and why they couldn't mine underneath this particular high-quality stream. So the first day I went and I looked at the stream with a, um, a biologist friend of mine, and we, we, it was a hot summer day, and there was water in the stream, and then we went on to see something like three or four other streams that were overlying that particular panel, as it's called. When we came back, something like two or three hours later, traipsing through the woods, the stream was no bigger than a puddle. It was not flowing. It was just a puddle. And so we took samples, and uh, my biologist friend said, sure, there are organisms in there that are supposed to be representative of high-quality environments. <clears throat> but he said the state made sure that was going to happen because the state called organisms that you can find in an old car tire gathering rainwater as part of that high-quality environment. So 500 miners lost their jobs for a stream that was intermittent, that had virtually no water in it from one part of the afternoon to the later part of the afternoon. And I thought that was absurd. And I, so I did that consulting work. But after I had done, uh, and that was a good bit of work, I, um, I said to my wife, well, wait a minute, I just retired. What am I doing working all these hours every day? Uh, so I uh, basically stopped doing that kind of consulting, although I'm always open to do any kind of environmental consulting. That's you laid out so much right there, and I had no idea that you did policy work. That's something I could talk to you about for ages. I don't. It would probably bore the audience to tears because um, I I love doing policy work in my own profession. It's frustrating at times, and I I hear the absurdity of of that. And you know, when politics get involved, it's yeah, it's almost all over. Nothing nothing makes sense. Um, I I think I want to hear. You, you you spent a long time in the in the like the biological geological sciences realm, right? From oceanography to uh, you know, mining consultation, and and I really want to talk about the blog because I get a lot out of reading your your writing. Um, I think it's pithy. I think it's intelligent. I think it's high level. It, it's very challenging to the intellect, and. If I'm remembering, I should probably do my homework and pull the website up so I can see it. But it, but the, the the teaser is something like, um, you know, this is this is for mental mapping, and you should use these uh, blog posts as a jumping off point to your own journey or insight. Yeah, point of departure. Yeah. So, um, help me understand how you got from because you, I I don't know what Michael does for work. Your your other son, but uh, I know Christian does psychology. But I'm wondering how you go from 
English and you know writing to uh, oceanography to you know geological sciences too. Hey, here's here's a way to like gain insight into one's own own life. Well, I long thought. Um, I, I used to say, and I'm sorry I didn't trademark, but I used to say back in the uh, '90s to my students and '80s, I would say, "Look, this is your only college experience. Don't waste it." And well, that's just common sense, right? It's, an adult would say that to a student, but then it, it morphed into, "This is not your practice life. <laughs> and, uh, you get this one shot. You know, you're." You're basically a rookie on the field, and everybody's expecting you to perform from the get-go. You don't have a chance to say, oh, if I mess it up this time, I'll come back and do it another time. You don't. This is it. So I think that it's a matter of almost carpe diem, you know, seize the day, do this, be conscious of what you're doing. Uh, You'll make mistakes, but then everybody does. That's no excuse for making the mistakes, and that doesn't excuse mistakes, but uh, you know you're not perfect. It's, fi- it's a finite world. Uh, your life is going to be terminated sometime, so get the most of it while you can. My other son, by the way, is a head baseball coach at uh, California University of Pennsylvania. Nice. And uh, it's been successful there. Um, the, uh, and I have a daughter, Melanie, uh, and, and she has a wonderful family. And so uh, they're all relatively close, which is, which is great because I have seven grandchildren, and I get to see them pretty frequently. Uh, but anyway, so then I thought, well, I had, I helped a, a colleague write a dissertation. Actually, I helped a lot of colleagues write dissertations, but I helped a colleague write a dissertation on mental mapping. And at first, when he mentioned it to me, I thought, I'm not really familiar with this term. But then I began to look into it more deeply, and I realized there is nothing more significant than place. Because as I say in the entry to my blog, if I said to you, Jake, think of 10 minutes ago, I would, I would defy you to think of 10 minutes ago without thinking of place. Right. You, you can't. You can't. Time itself is irrelevant outside place. There was no time until there was a universe. There was no time until after the Big Bang, essentially, or with the Big Bang. So time is, in a sense, dependent upon the uh, place or the space in which we measure it or live our lives. Right. So I, I like to think that we can somehow map where we are. Now, I have to say that if you, if you have to get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom in your house, you're familiar with your house, so you don't even need to turn the lights on, right? Correct. Well, that's the way Earth is. You know, you're, you've, you ask yourself, should I be unfamiliar with this only home that I'll ever live on, which is Earth. I should know this place because it shapes how I think, what I do, my behavior. Uh, it shapes a lot of what I am, my attitudes. Uh, if, if, for example, it's a cloudy day out. So what if I'm inclined to let the weather, let's say I'm low on vitamin D and I haven't been out in the sun or whatever, and I let the weather dictate my mood? Well, there I am in a place with my environment shaping who I am. And my uh, guess is I can somehow get beyond that. Uh, if I consider place as something that I get a good grip on mentally, know why I am, where I am, what I'm doing, what I'm doing, it, and how it affects me. 
So, yes, it's a cloudy day here in western Pennsylvania. Uh, tomorrow is supposed to be 37 degrees. The day after that is supposed to go up to 45 degrees or more. And so I need to be able to say uh, I need to adapt to whatever place is I am. I'm gonna, if, I, if I'm in a room, if I'm in a classroom, if I'm in a, you know, a giant hall, I need to say, how is this place shaping who I am? It gives me some sense of uh, organization, I suppose. So the the, uh, the idea then, as I'm gathering it, is that we we create meaning from where we are physically. Is that is that accurate? You cannot divorce yourself from it. You can sit and say, "I'm just going to talk about philosophy," but when you step out, when you put the book down and you take that first step, the philosophy has to be translated into what does it mean to live in this. In this environment, in this cosmos, you have to know something about the, the universe. You have to know something about it. I mean, it's foolish. I just uh, wrote a blog this morning. Um, I, it takes me usually about a, one cup of coffee to write a blog, but sometimes uh, I'll spend two cups of coffee on one. And there have been a few longer ones, like 2,000, 3,000 word ones, where I might write it the night before and rewrite it in the morning with that cup of coffee and finish it off. But... Um, when you just think about where we are and what we're doing, we don't really, I, I suppose we go through so unconsciously. It's before, it's foolish for people. As I said, I was writing a blog for it's for foolish for people not to realize that this is not their practice life. I saw a video on YouTube uh, yesterday where uh, I'd been in uh, Guatemala City and in Antigua, Guatemala which I thought was one of the most beautiful places I'd ever been in the world. And Antigua, Guatemala, which uh, is magnificent. See, no, no building can be taller than, except for the churches, can be taller than two stories because a giant Vulcan uh, Fuego is right there. You can see this 12,000-foot-high volcano right outside the city, which could destroy the city at any time. Well, Fuego happens to be, be erupting now. And so there was a video showing um, tourists up on the neighboring volcano, as the volcano was erupting, saying, ooh, oh, wow, look at that. And I thought, these people do not realize that in 1902, 28,000 people died when Mount Pele erupted on Martinique, and they were standing near that volcano, that people died in while St. Helens erupted, when uh, Pinatubo erupted, and all these dangers that occur. People take risks. So I ask in this particular blog this morning, how is it that after a half billion years of brain development in which we've gotten an inner brain and an outer brain, that the inner brain, which has enabled us to survive with that fight, flight, or freeze response, can be dissociated from the outer brain, from the cerebral cortex? How is it possible that people can say, I'm going to go stand by a, an erupting volcano and I am not going to worry about the risk that I am taking. And I think that one reason that that's occurred more so probably in the uh, 20th century and in the 21st century is because we've spent so much time virtually. We've spent time going to the theater, watching movies, where anything can happen, but it doesn't really matter because you walk out of the theater and not, you have not been affected. There's no consequence. Then we've got television in the 50s. 
And people started to do that. And the same thing went on. You could watch almost anything. And then we went into the computer age and computer graphics and videography. And we end up with saying, well, wait a minute. I can watch a game in which bombs are going off everywhere. And I can get up and go get a sandwich immediately afterward. So there's this dissociation, I think, that goes on in individuals that separates their amygdala from their frontal cortex. Are we losing human consciousness? Um, no, I think we're losing a certain kind of an awareness we had to have in a time when things weren't as easy. It's very, it's very, you know, I don't want to say that we're all Marie Antoinette's and uh, saying, I, uh, well, let them eat cake, and, you know, being that far removed from reality. But in an affluent society, you, you find yourself not worrying about daily survival. And that's gone right. on pretty much around the world. It's, I'm not in uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo right now where people are being risking not only being bitten by a poisonous snake or some insect or getting Ebola, but also by being shot by some random youth who had been trained from the get-go to kill people mm-hmm. because life is meaningless. Uh, and you find, you know, you're looking at where we are today, uh, we have a great many people dissociated from that kind of reality and from ri- the nature of risk, which is why I think we find so many risk takers uh, dying. Because let's get a let's get a, a, a selfie, you know, by standing on this bridge, and then next thing you know, you've got a dead person with a camera line, a phone camera lying beside him because they've fallen off the cliff, and that's happened numerous times over the past fifteen years. Well, those are just the accidental risks, right? Like that doesn't even take into account the purposeful ones like, uh, you know, flying in a squirrel suit or jumping out of an airplane or, you know, that, those kinds of things. Even, even diving, if you're, if you're not, if you're diving for, I guess, diving for risk versus diving for exploration, right? And, and, um, there's, there's all these human, um, I guess challenges like the the, the feats, the the Spartan games, and and these things that we're pushing our bodies to the limits now. It's almost like it's a proxy for what we used to do simply for survival. And you know, maybe this is a conversation for uh, you know some a biological uh, evolutionary biologist. You know, maybe to, to 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 discuss what we're doing these you know quote unquote these days to satisfy that very ancient limbic need for exhilaration because uh, we're all, for lack of a better phrase, kind of fat, dumb, and happy in Western modern civilization. Um, I, I wonder about the erosion, though, on on our – I guess I used consciousness, but that's not really what I meant. I guess it's more like human interconnectivity that I think is being eroded because we're la- what I see in my profession is a lack of vulnerability and intimacy within and among – human beings and you bring up a really good point about just not being challenged by environment we're not driven by survival anymore we're driven by i don't know we're driven by (laughs) it's like have we solved all the major problems and now all we've got to complain about is you know who's parking their car across the street the wrong way and you the hoa needs to go solve it i I don't know you know it seems simplistic we we become trivial uh, in our perspective simply because we don't have to worry about the big things. I, we're not involved in 
the, you know, one of those European countries during the Second World War, or one of those islands during the Second World War, where people were dying by the thousands, you know, 50 some million people died in the Second World War. That, what effect did that have on those who were surviving at the time? It's difficult to, under, to get people today who live in relative luxury to understand that. They are marine Antoinettes, essentially. And you to lose compassion, obviously, which is probably the word that my son would use. Uh, and you're talking, and it's a dissociation of sensibility, is what it is. Are we trying to maybe get that back through some of the, the political motivations? You know, like the, the, the all the, you got, you got conspiracy theorists and you got the, the MAGA camp and you got the Wokistanis and like all, all these people who are seemingly extremely fragmented away from the two standard deviations away from the mean, you know, rest of humanity. And they, and they seem to have the bullhorns, which is problematic. Um, and, and I'm wondering if the, the result, or I guess that's the result of our complacency or, I don't know, have, have we got, have we gotten too comfortable that we now have to reach for absurdities to as to hold up as our cause for something to fight for. Well, we've we've gotten to the point. Um, there was a study done by a guy named uh, Nieder Krautenthaler, who seems to be an expert on suicide and the media, the media coverage. And he and his group said that in doing studies, for example, to show you how susceptible we are to all these extremes, for example, is that when the media covers uh, a suicide by a celebrity, suicides go up by something on the order of 13%. And by the same methodology used by the celebrity, that methodology goes up by 30%. So we're highly susceptible in this society to any kind of suggestion from what we consider authority figures or idols. And it's really, it's a lot of uh, idolizing, of course. And, you know, you have to say to yourself, how is it that people latch on? I remember my sister saying she loved the Beatles and they came to Pittsburgh and she said, she said it was crazy. And she was just a teenager at the time. And she said, I saw a girl eating the grass that they walked across. Yeah, it's right. <laughs> it's kind of absurd, right? But at the same time, you have to say to yourself, well, a celebrity commits suicide, and all of a sudden, uh, suicides go up by 13%, and then there are 30, uh, there are 30, let me shut this off, sorry. Uh, there are, uh, there, there's, you know, 30% people doing it exactly the same way as the celebrity uh, committed suicide. I just had a conversation with a gal uh, who's a psychologist in India. Uh, Jasdeep Mago is her name. And she said that something similar happened in her town. Uh, well, I don't know if it was in Mumbai where she is or if it was a different town. But there was some celebrity who died by suicide. And sure enough, there was a contagion effect. So so what you're saying is, what's the name of that guy, that researcher who published the article? Uh, Nieder Krautenthaler. Krautenthaler. K-A-R-A-U. N-I-E-D-E-R. A R O T T H O L E R, something like that. I can I can probably send you uh, the link to the study. I've got him here. K R A O. Yeah, Nieder Krautenthaler. 
Oh, that's his full name. I was thinking it was two names. Thomas is appearing. Oh, no. <laughs> wow. That's his last name. That is longer than Wiskirchen. I am impressed. Yes. Nieder Krottenthaler. Okay. Um, and there is no hyphen. But anyway, so so that's you know that's true anecdotally from just my experience with talking to Jazdeep. But I had a I had a conversation because I want to get back to this idolatry concept. Um, I, I was are you familiar with uh, Brett Weinstein and um, and Jordan Peterson at all? Peterson, yes, but not not Weinstein. Weinstein's a, a he's an evolutionary biologist. They had a conversation recently. It was fascinating. But one of the topics they they broached was this idea that religion is evaporating uh, as a whole across you know, modern civilization. And it's it appears to be necessary for human functioning to believe in something greater, and and there seems to be an adaptive function to it uh, evolutionarily. And so, it, it, when we can't explain phenomenon, you know, with science, phenomena with science, we reach for religion as a as an approximate estimation of how we can explain things, right? So, as religion and we're talking Judeo-Christian religion, if we're in America, has come under attack, and religion broadly, I think, as a whole, uh, because it's been deemed, uh, I don't know, oppressive or authoritarian or uh, woo-woo or whatever. People need to fulfill that desire for something greater than self, and so they end up reaching for something like the the body politic, which is, which is not wise because that's just made of other human beings who are, you know, otherwise fallible. And, and when, when they wrap their identities, not in a religious belief, but in a, a human ideology, which can change and is quite malleable, uh, bad things happen because, because it's not infinite. It is quite finite. And when the answers aren't found, the, the rigid beliefs become so rigid that dissent can't be tolerated and minds can't be changed. So, I, I guess I'd kick back to you the the question of are you seeing or have you seen over time a change maybe because you worked in the university now and I'm assuming you maybe pay attention to some of that stuff still are is has our youth or have our adults moved away from embracing something like a formalized religion that usually promotes peace and harmony to something that's maybe more pol- political that promotes change and action um and then is that a problem or are we seeing it as a just a natural byproduct of civilization or maybe we're just well, making all this up? Uh, let, me, let me ramble for a moment. Please. Um, there was, um, in 1054, there was the giant schism and it, was, it separated the East and Western churches, for example. And you can guess that uh, from that moment on, there was a problem. And then, of course, the Reformation was another schism that occurred. Uh, at each moment, when people broke away from the one uh, unit that they found uh, solace in, they simply went to another one where they found the solace. So it's not as though, uh, I think, it's not as though people um, are driven toward um, an idol necessarily, but when I think about uh, another thing that I used to uh, say to uh, students, and that is, if you give me chaos, you make me a god, because I can make my own world. And essentially, we we do that, and you know, God with a small g. But basically, uh, you you take take a chaotic circumstance, 
you either succumb to it or you make an order. You order things. Now, the problem with order is that when we externalize order, and you as psychologists might disagree, but when we externalize order, we're basically making up for in, internal insecurities. Because it's easy to say, if I you know, think of um, going to the post office where all those mailboxes are, and I can say, I'm going to put in this mailbox Catholics, Jews, Protestants, Muslims, Hindus, Muslim, uh, uh, Buddhists, and I'm putting them all in those categories. So what happens is, if I can do that, then I don't have to worry about my own internal insecurities, uh-huh. because I've made the world outside of me totally secure as far as my perspective goes. And of course, that's the heart of prejudice. In prejudice, you say, I'm going to organize everybody this way. And everybody falls in that category. And of course, what happens in numerous movies and novels about people discovering that, well, wait a minute, there there are those gray areas. (laughs) You know, he might be this, but why does he show these tendencies over here uh, for that? And the problem is that we have a tendency, I think, to make those compartmental judgments saying we're going to compartmentalize everything out there because it's easy for us. It makes it very simple. Yeah, I I advocate that people don't use labels, right? Because labels are very limiting and something that Jung wrote about and and Christian taught us when he was teaching the Carl Jung uh, chapter of the book, more or less, in school, was that uh, you, all human beings have a limitless capacity to do anything else that a human being has done, great and terrible. And so I think it's it satisfies our egos to put labels on people and put them into those boxes. And I love the post office analogy because it's it's so visual and there's lots and lots and lots of boxes, right? But once you put somebody into one of those boxes, it essentially says you can't be in any other box. And that while that's very satisfying to me, the the labeler, the the box stuffer, if you will. Um, I I don't allow myself to account for any other multiplicity of personality, right? And I think that the I'm stumbling over this because I'm I'm considering it for the first time. I think the byproduct of that is that I see myself in that and I and I have to self-label, right? So so then I'm self-limiting and if my message all along has been the external world needs to be boxed up and labeled and quantified so we can measure it and know what it is and give ourselves a false sense of certainty, then I myself am not going to be comfortable being many things or infinite because that's scary because it opens up the possibility for all things, right? Great and terrible. And then you've opened yourself up to the chaos that, I mean, the world is filled with disorder right and we keep imposing order on it and as i said that makes anybody a god in a sense because he said i'll take this chaos i'll take what appears to be nothing that of order and order it what satisfies a power and control need which is one of our five basic needs that william glasser talks about uh satisfying that power and control need is is useful and good and necessary but not at the expense of freedom which is another need Fun, which is another need. Survival, you know, if you if you label everything, say badly because you don't like processed foods or you know GMO products or something, you you right. you limit your ability to, to even ingest what is reasonably beneficial. 
Um, and then the love and belonging needs. So those are the five basic needs, power and control, freedom, fun, love and belonging, and survival. And, and when we, when we sacrifice many for one, for, for this instance, we're talking about power and control, the ability to control what others represent to us. Um, it makes it really hard to connect with them, especially if we've deemed them and I'll put air quotes around them, uh, undesirable and then it becomes us versus them and then we're filled with contempt and so then we end up with isolation and isolation is not good for humanity and connectivity it is that i don't know are you seeing this or am i going crazy like is this this where we find ourselves where we're just self-isolating because we've imposed labels upon people that aren't even accurate we do and actually this past year has probably enhanced that isolation uh and withdrawal because and we're doing some great damage, I think, to the youth right now because we've made them withdraw from society that they would normally go through to grow up. Um, it's kind of terrible in a way. And, and people are thinking that, um, okay, well, no, we, we have things like this, the Zoom, where we can, you know, educate people. The problem is there was just another study done in part uh, by Carnegie Mellon people. And I can't tell you who the people were who did it, but... They looked at uh, video conferencing and they wanted to know whether or not it actually enhanced group intelligence. So you get a bunch of people sitting around a a table in a normal circumstance prior to 220 or 2020. And you uh, they're sitting around, they're trying to say, okay, how can we move the company forward? What new ideas, what direction do we need to go in? Or you get a bunch of academics sitting around. How do we, how do we pursue this particular problem? And they sit around, they brainstorm. Well, what the Carnegie Mellon study showed was that the visual uh, channeling that we do here, you and I are doing, for example, right now, if the audio is not giving me all your intonation, all those subtleties of intonation, so I would get if I'm face-to-face with you, I am not getting the kind of feedback I need to get, and it actually decreases group intelligence. So a Zoom meeting is not as helpful as a face-to-face meeting. And I think of this not the way the Carnegie Mellon people did, but something I've mentioned to Christian, because I've gotten him into listening to uh, classic radio shows when he's he's on a down moment. He likes to listen to Boston Blackie and things like that. And I said, uh, shows like that, and I I have... um, I have Sirius XM radio and I'll turn on the classic radio shows. And what I find now is that I'm different from a list. I'm a different kind of listener from what I was when I was young. I grew up at a time before television. We had in our living room, a giant radio box. I mean, the radio was not very sophisticated. Didn't have FM. It was AM essentially, but it was a big console. And it was a piece of furniture, and it had big knobs on it and a round dial on it. And my parents and I would sit in the evening, as many people did, and they listened to old-time radio shows. Well, they were contemporary radio shows. (laughs) And everything from comedies like Jack Benny to uh, Dragnet, the original original Dragnet, to cowboy shows uh, like Cap Gun Will Travel, that kind of thing. Well, what I found... In recently, well, I was listening to uh, Abbott Costello. Everybody knows Abbott and Costello for the 
you know, who's on first routine. And then I realized if I don't pay really good attention, I'm missing some words. And it doesn't have anything to do with my hearing. It has to do with my attention span for audio, audio alone. I had better listening skills when there was just radio than I now have when I have both radio and television or videos because I'm used to getting the image in which I can impose meaning or derive meaning, infer meaning, that I'm not getting from the sound alone, from the intonation, for example. And what I also noticed was many of those old-time radio performers spoke very fast. Mm -hmm. I think, holy cow, I was really young, but I could follow everything they were saying. And right now, I say, well, I missed that. And there's no no rewind button on it, uh, unless you had it on CD. So you realize our our ability to listen has been hampered by this emphasis since the 50s on the visual, television, Mm -hmm. and now, of course, uh, things like the internet, the web, where we see videos on that all the time. What's that leading us toward? Because you know, in, in terms of isolation, I get, I get the, I get the lack of paying attention and the, and maybe the, the erosion of ability to concentrate. Because I, I notice that in myself. If I read a, a really heavy text like you know something by Joseph Campbell, for example, um, it's hard. It's hard to, to stay in that zone. Um, sure, hard as Schopenhauer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> So I, I don't think it's my intellect because I, I have the intellectual capacity, but I do think it's my ability to pay attention, which has deteriorated simply because I've filled my life with so much crap. Um, well, that, Jake, can I interrupt and yeah. say, I had a colleague who said, ah, this is probably back 30 years ago. He said, we're in the Sesame Street generation. I said, what do you mean? He said... When kids are growing up and they're watching Sesame Street, they get the letter A, 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 and then on to something else. So they get five seconds of something. They don't get anything prolonged. They go right to the next thing. And, of course, almost everything works that way in the modern world. Where is that prolonged, sustained kind of concentration Where's it? Where do we find ourselves being under that demand? Because everything comes and goes, comes and goes, comes and goes. Because with seven billion people on a planet and everybody, uh, you know, capable of doing anything, you're getting all of this thrown at you all the time. You don't really have time to sit and ponder, so you lose that perspective. Just as I said, I think I've lost the ability to enjoy fast-talking radio comics that I had back when I was young. And I'm, I'd have to, I have to train myself by getting away from the visual, I think, and just doing that and that alone for a while, because we can retrain our brains to do almost anything. And I think that also enhances what you talked about before is this kind of withdrawal where we're pulling into ourselves and away from the personal contact with others, which then has this cascading effect of, a, of diminishing co- uh, compassion, for example, uh, because if you're not really in close contact, I mean, really think about it. In the, I'll give you one more uh, digressive uh, note. 
I was walking uh, last summer in an outdoor mall, and there was a parent pushing a little child. The parent had a mask on. All the people had masks on. And this baby was uh, maybe just getting into the toddler age. And I thought, this baby is not seeing the multitude of human expressions that that, that baby would see without masks. Yeah. So we, we have, at this time, we're getting the very young, growing up, when they go out in public, they don't see this much of anybody's face, right. which is a great deal of what expression is. So this is probably helping to isolate us a little bit more. And there's, and, and while I'm on it, there was another study done, uh, and the reason I would probably not want people to go to Mars, one of the reasons among many, but, and that is this. I found that in low gravity, microgravity situations, astronauts were having increasing difficulty or people tested under those kinds of circumstances were having increasing difficulty reading expressions. So they might read a neutral expression as a mean expression. So I'm picturing people driving dune buggies on the moon under lower gravity, uh, having road rage there because they can't read expressions as well because they've been subjected to microgravity. So we, we think about the entire gamut of what we've just been through and what we're still going through. We're masking ourselves so we don't see those expressions. We're little, it's okay for us adults because we've seen all those expressions. We know how to read eyes, for example, because we've read eyes along with mouths. We've read all those expressions. But babies, toddlers, they have to get used to seeing that because they're not going to understand what is a mean expression, a neutral expression, or happy expression. Yeah. They'll take happiness as neutral and neutral as mean. Yeah, to piggyback off that, that's that's a great deal of what I've done with uh, videos on the Zephyr channel and, and this podcast as well as I reference uh, Carol Izzard's research from the, the 80s and uh, in early 90s where he found that human beings – from somewhere between 88 and 94 percent of the time can identify the 10 core emotions that we possess by facial expression and through that we not only create interconnectivity but also communicative understanding uh, which is important because the evolutionary adaptive purpose of that is to connect in community because there's an anthropological theory that several of them actually that suggest that the reason that human beings in our present form as homo sapiens evolved and not some of the other hominids is because we connected through emotional functioning because we had larger limbic areas in our brain they speculate this through skull analysis and so forth while the other hominids were smarter they had bigger frontal cortices uh, they died off because they needed the tribe to, to survive, to weather things like climate change and predator attacks and so forth. Um, so we literally need our tribe to survive. Now, fast forward to today, you don't. Um, you can get these proxy influences in your life through Zoom, online internet, you know, inter interconnectivity. Uh, you can get d groceries delivered to your doorstep. Like we literally don't have to interact with anybody to survive. Now, I would argue that there's more to life's meaning than just the amount of beats that your heart uh, exudes over the over a period of time, and and then we're getting into you know meaning of life stuff. But I, I think to 
to go back to the idea of this um, this world that we're stepping into, I, I had an epiphany when you were talking. I, um, I've been drinking like a fire hose over the last, I don't know, year, year and a half, two years or so, trying to consume as much content as possible from people smarter than I am, which is one of the reasons I'm having this conversation now. Because uh, selfishly, uh, I want to give it out to the world. But selfishly, I just want to learn more. <laughs> and so uh, something just clicked. And it's the combination of our evolutionary pace as humans, the accelerated pace of today's world, and there's a great TED Talk by a gal named Catherine Boskill, B-O-U-S-K-I-L-L. She's a researcher from Rand Corporation. I don't know if she still works there or not, but the, the TED Talk's a couple years old. But she, she's, a, she's a cultural anthropologist, and she's talking about how the pace of life has outstripped our developmental stage evolutionarily. We're trying to cram more in. And I think the stimulus overload com- combined with the, the lack of, I think, um, formal anchoring and belief system combined with a pressure to perform, combined with separation for all sorts of things, not to mention pandemic and government lockdowns that purposely separate us, um, has all basically just resulted in, in, in an outstripping of what we're capable of with our still ancient brains, right? Uh, it's almost like we've created this technology that we're not able to keep up with. And the question now is, so I've, I've been digesting all this information, right? Yeah, yeah, seems like a good idea. There's something deep within me that, and I think within everybody I talk to, there's something deep within us that says, yeah, yeah, this feels off. This doesn't feel right. And I think it just clicked. And what clicked was, we're not supposed to be doing this. We're just, we're just not, we're not, we're not geared for it. Maybe in a couple hundred years, we'll have developed through, you know, iterations of, of generations beyond us uh, to, to keep up. What's that? That's Lamarckian. I'm not, I wouldn't buy into that necessarily. It's species evolved, not, not individuals. And, um, you know, yeah, there are certain things you have to ask yourself. Um, I mean, it's, just along with what you're saying, essentially, and that is, have we entered that world in which we have more data than we have wisdom? Yeah, so we there can, we go. You know, we can get this overload of data, and we don't know what to do with it. Well, not only don't we know what to do with it, there's a pressure to, to do something with it rapidly, right? Yeah, right, and we and we don't have the ability to do something with it rapidly. We make that's that generates a good many mistakes. And I think, uh, you know, if I had to do something uh, along that line in my uh, own background of, of uh, studying the climates and uh, um, uh, the atmospheric composition, and that would be, we've gotten this information uh, thrown at us about the climate, and we have to ask ourselves, are we getting the full picture? Because this is an incredibly complex planet. And then are we really looking at it as I would as a geologist? I know that uh, climates are always changing. I know that maybe it was, uh, in fact, a warming period and an incredible drought in Africa that might have brought us down out of the trees and put us on planes, you know, and made us bipedal. That's, that's a good thing. And I keep saying, well, okay, so everybody's worried about the climate, worried about the climate. Well, well, so were the people also, I wrote a, back in 2005, I wrote a blog in which was, I uh, wrote it as a letter. Um, and I talk about how, how the times are, how, how, how terrible the times are. Um, and then I end up 
saying, and King so-and-so uh, stopping at the end couldn't even find food. And it was like 1513. Okay, so 1513, we end up with, uh, 1513, we end up with circumstances. And I end the letter saying, what's next, a plague? And I said that in 2005. And of course, uh, you can go back and read that. I repost, I had written it back in 2005 or reposted it um, I don't know, a month ago or so, uh, that letter. And, and, I, and I said uh, in my introduction, reposting, and I said, was I Nostradamus? Was I uh, prescient of some kind? Uh, prescience? Uh, was I this insightful that I knew <laughs> uh, this was going to come? But actually, um, I had spoken to students about this a long time ago. And yes, you know, it's, it's a world in which so much is thrown at us. Um, can we predict the future? Can we say this is going to lead to this? No, we don't know because we don't know, you know, what tomorrow brings, obviously. Well, uh, and people can try to prognosticate and say this is where we're headed. But when they use that Lamarckian um, argument that, yeah, we're, gonna, we're changing and therefore our children are going to change and they're going to change, we don't know where change comes from. Mutations are, you know, they're random. Uh, Is it fair to say that no matter what, we're not equipped to deal with what we've created broadly with regard to technology and all our consumption? That's, sure, that's obvious. Because look at Victorian times. There was a book called, uh, um, it's been about 40 years since I read it. I think it was called Human Dignity and the Great Victorians. And a uh, person goes into circumstances in places like Liverpool and um, uh, Gloucester and other places that became industrial centers. And they were industrial centers and people flocked to the cities. You know, there was a rise of urbanization and they couldn't cope with uh, anything other than just packing people into factories and saying, this is where you're working and human dignity went way down. I mean, I talk about uh, throwing people into uh, what we would call apartment buildings where there was in fact no running water. You know, there was a town well and people threw sewage out into the street. Uh, so they couldn't handle the technology then. Hmm. We're having difficulty hand handling it as it's coming now because it obviously comes rapidly. When I think about my phone having more power than the computers that they sent their astronauts to the moon, <laughs> that's, that's right. where we are now. And of course, we always have to worry about, are we going to succumb to artificial intelligence taking over roles that we thought human beings should be playing? Yeah, it's it's a little spooky. And I think that the maybe the exhortation to the people listening and anybody who wants to share this around is um, we got we have to figure out some way to put on personal guardrails, I think, right? So we can we can learn to press in and connect more because this this inner drive, this inner sensation of this just doesn't feel right. It, you know, I can't quantify it. Um, has to be satisfied, and it's it needs to be satisfied for a reason. I think that reason is deeply embedded in our in who we are as human beings. Um, it's not to be ignored, and it's certainly not to go fill our lives with more distractions. You know, and, you know. Back to your your point about the the climate, right? We don't know a lot um, comparatively across time. Geologic time is. <laughs> we can't even wrap our heads around it. And I'm wondering if, if these uh, attempts to, you know, save the planet, so to speak, are just more of um, mailbox stuffing. You know, is it, is, is it just to try to give us a sense of control because we don't like what's going on? 
it, it, there, it, there's a power play, obviously. And there are those who probably have good intentions. I mean, I'm, I'm going to guess that um, maybe Al Gore has had good intentions, but every prediction failed. You know, the New York was would be underwater by 2012 or whatever, and, and, and all the rest of these predictions. And you see them constantly, and you have to say to yourself, well, wait a minute. Before human beings burned the first log, there was global warming. And then there was global cooling. And then there was global warming and global cooling. You just go back to the 11 advances and retreats of the glaciers over the past two and a half million years. Who warmed up the earth uh, like a million and a half years ago? Who who took care of uh, putting the the skids on the the, uh, younger Dryas climate period? Uh, And who who controlled the, um, let's say, the Little Ice Age? Or, or the medieval warm period, you know, when the Vikings landed in Greenland, they found that to be a relatively hospitable place. I mean, sure, there was ice in Greenland, but they found the margins of Greenland hospitable enough for them to settle. Now, they stayed there for, what, a, I don't know, a century or so, and then all of a sudden they disappeared. Why did they disappear? Well, we went from the medieval warm period a thousand years ago where exploration by Vikings was great to a period in which there wasn't such wonderful weather everywhere when we went into the so-called Little Ice Age. I mean, George Washington had to cross the Delaware at the end and height of the Little Ice Age. And these, these were cold times at Valley Forge. Does that mean uh, it's not going to happen again? No, because... We could very easily switch back. We might, in fact, there was an article in Scientific American some decades ago in which a fellow argued that, and I don't know his name and I don't know the title of the article, it's a long time ago, but he argued that we were postponing the another ice advance because there are these interglacial periods and geologists have long thought that we are currently in an interglacial period that we can look back two and a half million years and see ice advance, ice retreat, et cetera, et cetera, over this two and a half million years. And it's, we've been in ice retreat. So that doesn't mean that that ice retreat is over. And it doesn't mean that there won't be another ice advance. But maybe if it's possible that we are warming the uh, atmosphere, we postpone that next ice advance, hmm. which means you don't have to have Canada plowed into North America by ice sheets two miles thick covering million square miles. People just don't realize the circumstances under which humans have evolved. And if, if, if we have 250,000 years of human evolution, or maybe even 300,000, as we don't know for sure, of our own species, uh, we have to ask ourselves, what did these people go through to get to where we are today? They had to survive a great many differences in climate. So it certainly wasn't. Look, I think there's an argument that there's, a Stradivarius uh, violin has the sound that it has because the wood at that time, the trees that were growing at that time, were under the effect of the Little Ice Age. Hmm. Uh, that that beer uh, supplanted wine because vineyards succumbed, had succumbed to the Little Ice Age. So, uh, you know, thankfully we got beer. Amen to that. I wouldn't be homebrewing. I wouldn't even have my only hobby if I didn't. If we didn't have the little ice age, I'm, I'm thankful. Well, that, that. And, and our and our and our 
I think our affinity for beer goes way back to uh, microorganisms because there is that uh, molecule called cytochrome C, which is in all organisms. And I think if you take human cytochrome C and change it by something like 15, you get a horse. And if you change it by 53 uh, molecules, you get uh, beer yeast. So you can see our our affinity for we beer. Are, we are related to beer yeast. Yes. yes. <laughs> Next blog post. You know, I, I can't help but think that some of these giant global pro- problems, I'll put that in air quotes because we're only as aware as we choose to be and, you know, study. And so you throw climate in there. Um, and then some of the human afflictions like racism and bigotry and whatnot, they're outside of self. They're bigger than self. We can't explain them. They've always been with us. There's always been war and tribal conflict and, and there's always been climate change, right? So, you know, I, I just can't get off this idea that these are now substituting for religion, right? When we, when we need to explain things, we, we reach for the yes. thing that makes the most sense to our brains and give us the most sense of certainty. Cause we don't like uncertainty. Uh, we're not good at embracing mystery here in the West, especially. Um, so we, we reach for these explanations and then we try to take action upon them because it gives us a sense of control and controlling our future. And it's like, uh, you're only going to be on this planet for seven or so decades. Uh, the, the earth will do what the earth does. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's hard for me. Well, there, to... Yeah. There are controls beyond human controls. And it's possible, yes, obviously, human beings have, in fact, changed the planet. If you just fly across the country, no doubt. you see vast areas where there were forests at one time and there are no forests today because it's farmland. And it's, you know, if you look at the um, Ogallala Aquifer, uh, you know, we've taken water out of that for a very long time. So it, the recharge rate might be 50,000 years. Well, you know, we're not going to be around 50,000 years from now to wait for that recharge. So, yes, we do definitely affect the planet. There's there's no denying of that. And at the same time, every time we try to fix what we broke, we end up causing another problem. And I think of, um, I teach coastal geomorphology, and one of the problems is that you think, well, if we if we put sand here to preserve this particular beach, we are going to save save this beach. What we don't realize is there's a longshore transport in the waves and currents along the uh, United States, both sides, where there's something like 250,000 cubic yards of sands migrate down the eastern seaboard every year. And out there in the northwest, something like a million cubic yards of sands migrate every year. Well, if you try to stop those, you say, I'm going to stop this, this migration. I'm going to build a jetty or a set of groins into the water. I'm going to stop this. That means somebody down, down the current is going to miss the replenishment of sand. Every time we try to fix something, we are breaking something else. So we did it in, in uh, Lake Erie, for example. They were worried about the erosion of uh, Presque Isle, which is a recreational area. Uh, a spit that goes out there it was created by the currents moving the sands in Lake Erie, forming this long spit. It's just like Sandy Hook in New Jersey. When you try to save any section of it, you end up by blocking the movement of the sands and saying, we're going to preserve the section. You rob down current areas from getting those sands. So we do that almost everywhere. We think, are oh, we going to fix this? And we end up finding ourselves having created another problem. 
Why do we do that? Is it is it a is it just this um, uh, awkward razor god complex? Like we want to, <laughs> like we want to. Yeah, it is, and 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 I think it's it comes from a lot of well-meaning people. I think these people have good intentions. Uh, you know, the people I've dealt with in the government who work with the environment, uh, they're a lot of them really dedicated people, and they're out to to uh, do their best to to so-called save the environment. But I keep saying, okay, that's fine, and I'm glad you're after it uh but you have to watch you don't go overboard and cause another problem because of it because you think of the the oil industry started in pennsylvania at titusville in pennsylvania so-called colonel drake he wasn't a colonel but he was they gave him that appellation so that the people local people would get respect for him so he shows up um with the backing of a new york financier and he's going to drill and he gets the and this is before there were the kinds of drilling uh, apparatus that we have today. So he starts to, he goes out there and he gets local drillers who would have been drilling for water. And the reason he's drilling in Western Pennsylvania is because, for example, one of the state universities is named Slippery Rock. And the stream, Slippery Rock Creek, is slippery because oil seeps up and gets hmm. on the rocks and makes it slippery. I had no so, idea. So at Titusville and Oil City in that area, uh uh, Drake in 1859 started started to dig that well. Well, fortunately uh, for I suppose everybody after that, and especially for the whales who were being uh, killed off to get the uh, ambergris, for example, and other things that uh, you know whale blubber uh, were supplying for oil lamps. Um, fortunately for them, um, he hit uh, a seam with oil in it, and it was very lucky because. What happened was when he was drilling, of course, he had no way. He didn't have seismic uh, information. There was no such thing as seismic information at the time. But if, if you think this wedge right here, the, the seam was getting thicker and thicker this way. He was drilling right over this spot. So had he been just a few yards over this way, Drake would have missed that oil altogether. And we might have been who knows how many decades away from finding oil and getting that oil industry going again. Uh, but anyway, once Drake discovered oil, everybody went crazy. Let's go get this product now because it had great use. Cause now you could, you know, put that in oil lamps. You could put it to lubricate. Pennsylvania has great uh, oil for lubrication. It's known for that, that oil. And uh, of course it, it's a fuel. So uh, once that started, People went out there, and if you can see old-time pictures, and you go to a museum in the Titusville, for example, there are pictures of what it looked like back in the time when around, well, eight, you're talking about 1859, so Matthew Brady would have been taking pictures of the Civil War, so people were taking pictures at that time. You see, essentially, a sea of oil stacks, of oil rigs everywhere, and there's no vegetation, and then... The ground, even though it's a black and white photo, looks black because it was. And then what they would do for oil to, to transport uh, the oil, they would put it in big barrels, why we still call it uh, barrels of oil, put in big barrels, put them on wooden uh, barges, essentially big canoes, essentially, and float them down Oil Creek. Well, Oil Creek is only about this deep. <laughs> it's, it's only a few inches deep at, a lot of the time. So what they would do is they'd build dams in all the tributary creeks, back up the water, 
And then when they wanted to take the oil downstream to the Allegheny River and then on down to Pittsburgh and the Ohio River, etc., what they would do is they would break the dams, the water would flood, and the and the those little barges could go down to uh, the Allegheny wow. River that way. Of course, that ended in disaster one time when all the barges jammed up and caught on fire, and there was this <laughs> blaze there. Oh my gosh. Now, so if you if you can still see some old pipes lying in um, in Oil Creek, by the way, but if you go to Oil City, which is essentially in the center of that Titusville area where the oil industry runs, and there's still well which is the oldest continuous well in uh, the world running the McClintock well, I think it, when you go there, it's a treed area. There are forests, happy little bunnies running around and deer running through the forest. And there's no sign of all that black oil that was on patrolling. It was on the ground in a decimated area that had no trees. You might see a rusting old bit of, of portable oil, oil derrick from the turn of the 19th century going to the 20th century. And that's standing out there surrounded by trees, as I said, um, ferns and flowers and, you know, hunters looking for deer. Um, Earth, has a, Earth has the ability to cure itself sometimes. And it takes a long time, fortunately, but unfortunately, but it does it does forget about what we do. It, it, its memory isn't always that long. Now, it's like the atmosphere. When, when the so-called uh, asteroid hit um, Shiksalub and uh, wiped out the dinosaurs, right? The atmosphere has very short memory. The oceans have a longer memory. So any heat transported into the oceans would have lasted longer because water has a high specific heat. It holds mm-hmm. heat longer than the atmosphere. The atmosphere would have lost lost its heat but that doesn't mean that there weren't other effects atmospheric effects it's just that the way the world works there are bacteria that consume petroleum so it's on the ground it's being consumed it has a tendency to decay on its own you don't find that kind of destruction to the that environment oil city titusville area that occurred at the during the latter uh, decades of the 19th century. It's gone. That was only 160 years ago. That's right. That's right. And just, you know, go there today and you'd say, wow, these are nice woods. You, know, you go to, go, excuse me, uh, a, um, uh, a wildcatter uh, who is a, who's an individual who goes out and tries to drill well and find oil, right? Wildcatter. That's named after Wildcat Hollow because there were bobcats in the area and wildcat hollow is one place where that early oil drilling took place. Uh, just a little anecdote. And now it's got wildcats again. You know, I, <laughs> I wonder if some of this, uh, urgency is because I keep going back to why do people come into my office? Why do people get mentally ill, uh, you know, for short periods of time or long periods of time. And I, and I think it's just, it's an inability to, know oneself, tolerate emotions, respond appropriately to the environment. Um, and, and I'm not, I'm not oversimplifying because I, I think that this is a simple concept. I'm oversimplifying because I like things to make sense. And when I'm trying to make sense of zealotry, um, I, I think it just points back to 
we, we've all got just gone so fast and we've, we've tried to consume so much and do so many things and be all things and be on all platforms at all times that we've lost the ability to be patient and know our place in the great cosmos, um, to embrace mystery, find peace and, um, and align expectations with reality. And, and I don't know how to get back to that other than to invite people to 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 return to intentionality, you know, it's one of it's one of Christian's favorite words, my favorite word in counseling, and I think to bring it all back home and kind of put a put a bow on this conversation because I, I really enjoy talking, but I'm also mindful of time and I want to respect yours. Um, your your blog, this is not your practice life dot com, by the way. It it speaks to being purposeful with one's own choices. You want to be mindful and consider lots of different angles. But it's a it's a thought provoking exercise on how a person who's reading that can make next steps in their life with intent, not just unconsciously, re, you know, uh, mindlessly reacting to the environment out of emotion or whatever else or belief, you know. And, and so, I guess my invitation to the audience is to to check out Donald's blog. Obviously, that's it's it's really good, but also to to consider all this stuff that we've we've discussed and and how it might apply to your life like are you are you finding yourself just fumbling through reacting and not responding are you clinging to beliefs that maybe don't serve you anymore um and and then what do you want to do about that and what is your contribution going to be to the to the world you know i love that you're leaving a legacy with this with this writing and the impact you've made on your students and stuff i would love to have taken a class from you it would and maybe if you're bored, you can just jump on YouTube and start making seminars and put them out there. But um, it's been really fun. I want to I want to wrap up by saying by asking you if you had a, a class to teach or a topic to share, what do you think you would go back into if you if you could or wanted to? Oh, Jake, that would be very difficult for me to narrow it down. Honestly, <laughs> because, I, because in in my um, my first textbook I wrote. Um, uh, first textbook geez i yeah. haven't written anything you've got well, you've got them in order <laughs> well anyway um i i actually listened to a colleague of mine who said well why not make it holistic and i thought you know he's got a good point there i think what we need to do is i try to see analogs in almost everything i think probably what drives me to in my writing uh and, and i look for Things and I, I I don't want to belabor your time or your your effort here, but um, yesterday I wrote a poem from for a blog, and basically I I was just looking through um, uh, a book of poetry and I I stumbled across uh, Keats's poem uh, "Ode to a Nightingale," and uh, one of the things Keats says in that poem is that the song he hears the nightingale sing was the same song that the ancient kings heard. But the reality is there have been studies that show that when birds come back uh, to a meadow spring after spring after spring, there's a slight alteration in the song. You, you need an oscilloscope mm. to find it, and then, or you need to be an ornithologist with an ear for birds. But uh, there is a slight change. And I think about, I, and what I do is draw the analogy in our society. What we don't realize is that we might think that the song of our society that we sing now is the song that we were singing decades ago. But there have been those subtle changes. 
a note here, a note there. And they add up. And what it is, is it, yes, not, not necessarily the human brain is changing, although it's malleable, but the society changes note by note from, from generation to generation which makes it so difficult for somebody now to sing the same song that somebody sang back in the 1940s, for example, meaning not the song, but the culture, understanding the culture, knowing what's going on, communicating the same way. We know we're not going to communicate the same way in this generation that last did or five generations from now. And the same thing goes with your DSM that you people rely on. And that is, you know, uh, well, another blog I wrote recently about um, uh, uh, Robert Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy. Burton lived in the 17th century. He wrote of the ailment at that time, which was known as melancholy. Mm. Well, today we might call it manic depressive, or we might call it depression, well, melancholy. But he has a giant thick book on melancholy, and anybody in his time would have understood the malady. If you said to them, well, this is a manic depressive, or if you said something else, uh, then you would, then you would, you would not be able to communicate with them because they couldn't understand the metaphor. They, and what we have to watch in some way is, are we actually getting new understanding of what, of human psyche, or are we just throwing in neologisms? Are we, are we twisting it just a little bit so that we could say, Look, this is this is how we see it. Putting in a new metaphor without actually advancing our understanding. I'm sorry for running on on that, but I, no, no, I, it's I, good. I'm not short on time whatsoever. I was just trying to respect yours. I could talk about this I, stuff I, I, all day. I'm retired, That's true. That's true. <laughs> um, well, let maybe we don't have to wrap up then. I I wrestle with that um, because one of my many frustrations with my professional field is that. I think people do repackage things and I don't know that we're doing a, a follow-up analysis. Um, I had a conversation recently with somebody about uh, uh, policies because we tend to you know, hurry and throw together policies to say that we did something and then there's no policy analysis to follow up. And, and so we'll take something and I'm, it's going to sound unfair if you're listening and you know what I'm talking about. I'll take something like uh, dialectical behavior therapy which is an amalgamation of other theoretical modalities. And we know it works, but did it advance anything? I don't know. And and there's a lot of them out there that we know they work. Um, ACT works. Um, there's a, uh, you know, it's acceptance and commitment therapy. EMDR is a new, uh, a new modality that people are using where it involves moving and tapping and integrating the body's senses while connecting with, uh, the, the brain and and trying to reprogram stuff, but now recently I've heard about something that's basically EMDR light, and it it does the same thing, but without having to go through the full blown program. And it, I don't want to chalk this up to uh, you know nefariousness or uh, capitalism. I don't I don't think that's it. I think people are honestly trying to pursue new innovative ways to get things done the way that they are comfortable, and that's fine. But when you compare that against the backdrop of the explosion of mental illness and people seeking care and provider deficiencies, uh, I don't know that we've necessarily advanced the cause if uh, if we're not healing the world. 
you have problems to deal with. I would wonder if 18th century woman from melancholy came to your office and said, I need help. Would she comprehend the nature of your help? Or could you go to the eight, for example, and say, I have to deal with these people who are suffering from melancholy? Well, I, I think that, I, I mean, I would like to think that I'm a little unique because I have studied a lot of the, the originators of the field. Uh, I've read a lot of Jung and Freud, and, and I would like to think that I, I do well enough seeing through this is going to sound awful to those who who really are interested in um, cultural competence training and diversity, inclusion, equity, and stuff. Uh, but I, I see through the culture, I see through the outward behaviors, and I I try to meet the inner soul of the human being I'm talking to, regardless of of who they are, where they are, what they look like, what they do for a living, where they were raised. And I get curious and humble about their story. I'm not interested in projecting my own stuff on what I think they are. So I, I think for me, I would, I would probably do okay. Now, that's probably just an arrogant overstatement of my own abilities. Um, but to your point, I don't, I don't know that, that uh, students graduating from grad programs today have that ability because they've been pumped. And I know this because we, we interview them all the time uh, for, for grad student positions and new, new therapist positions. They've been pumped so full of um, – CBT and and thinking errors and um, and the the modern evidence based practices that are supposed to be very brief in their duration and solution focused that I I don't know that people have practiced sitting with another human being and being curious I think our profession has moved more toward I'm gonna I'm gonna give you some stuff you're gonna go home and take the homework and and fill it out and and you'll get fixed somehow. So I, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Well, <laughs> I can't uh, speak to it since I'm not uh, in your profession that much. So I'm just on the outside. It's a good would... thought exercise though. And, and, um, and I well, like, I like doing if you, you said, well, what would I teach? I, it, as long as I'm challenging students, it didn't matter what subject. I don't care if we were, you know, if I was teaching a, a literature class or a writing class or a um, carbonate uh, uh, sedimentology class. It wouldn't matter. Just challenge, challenge the people. Well, I mean, every time you, you accept the challenge and you meet it, uh, you've gained something. You uh, may or may not know that you had a profound impact on many students um, because Christian takes a lot of what you've, you've used in your own career path and, used them in the university setting. One of which was, uh, you know, I'm only going to be on one planet the rest of my life. I might as well know as much about it as possible. He, he adapted that into, I'm only going to have one mind the rest of my life. I might as well know as much about it as possible. And, and I think that's really cool. But one thing that's really stuck with me that he attributes to you is I asked him one day, way back when we first met 2007 or something. And I, I said, how is it possible that you have all these books and authors and references and instant recall at the top of your head when you're teaching. He says, my dad taught me that if you, if you really want to learn something, read it as though you have to teach it to somebody else. And, and I'll tell you what, Don, that shifted 
everything for me. I listen to podcasts now as though I have to teach them to somebody else. I read, obviously. Um, I pay attention in, in you know, conversations as though I have to relay it. And man, this, the information really sticks. I'm wondering if you have some other little gems that you uh, would like to leave people. I mean, I'll just speak to that for a second, and that is this. When I was a, a young teacher and I uh, in Pennsylvania you had to go through student teaching uh, your senior year, uh, and I had been on, of course, the student side of the desk, uh, the teacher's desk for all my life. Uh, and all of a sudden, I had to be on the other side of the desk. And I realized knowledge isn't something that I'm supposed to struggle with. It's something I'm supposed to convey. And by studying it so that you, have to t- you can teach it means you can organize. You can take the, mm. what so many students is, in fact, chaos, and you make it into order mm-hmm. for them. You're, you're presenting it for them. And you want them to see an order that they can't see from their side of the desk. So, yes, I always say if you want to learn something, um, I always uh, contradicted students who said, well, I, I understand it, but I can't explain it. No, if you cannot explain it, you do not understand yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. The only, the only thing that applies to essentially is love. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if we if we can even do I mean, either of that. You never you never want to have uh, a, 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 the woman or man in your life saying, "Well, why do you love me?" <laughs> that, that explanation is going nowhere. <laughs> yeah. You just you put your finger to your lips and go. <laughs> so, what other uh, pithy uh, insights might you you want to share from your uh, years of experience? Uh, maybe I spent them all in my morning blog writing uh i'm not quite sure i um that i can come up with anything on the spot that would be a that's fair i kind of trapped you with it um all right well i think that's a good place to end then i i I loved it and and i i think it that smart people who've done some you know work over the course of their their lives which is pretty much anybody i think uh deserves to you know have it shared because i think wisdom is universal and the more we the more we can absorb regardless of the source the the better off we are and you know I, I started doing this podcast almost four years ago now which is crazy to me and the whole goal in my mind was just to push information out because and I say it repeatedly this doesn't do any good locked up in my head I want I want people to take it and use it so that we can help make earth better you know and I think we're doing that I'm really appreciative of your time and I, I really appreciate that the what all that you've shared it's really fascinating. I love talking to people who've done vastly different things like teach oceanography and talk about <laughs> sands being you know, carried from the North Atlantic down to, to Miami or whatever. Uh, it's, it's really cool. So thanks for that. And um, I, I, uh, I, I've been concluding podcasts lately by asking what's one thing you want the audience to take away uh, something that Christian does with his class is what's one thing you're taking away, but what's an exhortation you might give? Challenge yourself every day. There's never a time when you shouldn't be challenging yourself. I don't care whether it's a matter of uh, driving along the highway and uh, seeing a tree you've never seen before and saying to yourself, uh, what type is that? I need to find out. Or, And with me, of course, it's almost anything that I see on the planet uh, you know, not just the rocks, obviously, but the processes that go on. And then how am I related to anything I'm looking at, the, the objects and the processes? 
Just challenge yourself. I want you to come visit because we have a yard full of rocks that I, I, I know my kids enjoy them and I'm pretty sure they're, they're igneous of some sort. Cause there was a lot of yes, volcanic no, activity, but, uh, but Reno. yeah, but Reno, uh, I want names. <laughs> I want names and analyses. <laughs> well, thanks oh, yeah. man. Okay. Yeah. That, you know, I'll, I'll mail you a box and you can send labels back or something. Uh, <laughs> but well, thanks Donald Conti for joining us, uh, on behalf of the Noggin Notes family and the Zephyr Wellness family. We wish you all great mental wellness. Bye-bye. Bye.